Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. We had a quiet day in the U.S. stock market today. Not much reaction from a slightly weaker than expected February durable goods orders number that came out before the market opened. They were looking for a weak number. The consensus was for a decline of 1.8%. We got a decline of slightly less than that, 1.6%. But they revised the prior month down uh, from up 0.4 to up 0.1. So we declined less, but from a lower number. Overall, slightly weaker. In fact, the uh, core capital goods number uh, was also slightly weaker. They were looking for a rise of 0.2. Instead, we had a drop of 0.1, although they revised the prior month up from 0.8 to 0.9. Still a little weaker uh, on the day, but the market still seems to be oblivious to the weak data. In fact, later in the day, we did get the auto sales numbers uh, that were disappointing as well. Uh, a lot of bad news is being routinely overlooked by uh, by Wall Street. Lyft, uh, the company that went public on Friday, I discussed the lackluster performance of that IPO on Friday. In fact, uh, most of the commentary that I that I listened to or saw was positive. They were describing the Lyft IPO as a big success. Everything went great. Uh, the the stock went up. But what concerned me about the stock was not that it went up, but how weakly it closed. It pretty much closed on the low of the day. It had sold off pretty much all day following the pop on the open. The stock came public at 72, and it immediately traded as high as 88.6, but closed the first day of trading at 78.29, still above the $72 price. But anybody who bought the opening uh, print uh, was down. And then it got clobbered on Monday and it fell again today. I mean, it only closed down slightly. So it closed relatively near the highs of the day, but the low was $66.10. That's 25% below the peak price on Friday. So that's a bear market. In fact, officially, uh, Lyft sank into a, bad, a bear market on its second day as a public company. And so that bear market, uh, you know, got even worse today. And the stock is now better than 8% below its IPO price. So even if you were lucky enough to get the stock on the IPO, if you still haven't sold it, you're down. People can go into the market today and get a better price than the people who, you know, got in on the IPO. And again, as I mentioned on Friday, the record that we set with Lyft was not uh, the size of the IPO. I mean, this is relatively, I think, what was it, $24 billion market value. Uh, A lot of stocks have been much bigger than that. The record that they set was for the biggest loss. This company has lost more money in the prior year 
than any other company in history that has been taken public. You know, to me, it seems that companies should not go public until they're making money. I mean, until they're profitable, right? That's when, you know, you prove that your business model works and then you go to the market for more money in order to expand on a model that works. But the way Wall Street does it today, you go public before you've ever made any money. And so what you're doing is you're asking the retail investor to bet on the come, to buy a stock that may never make a nickel in profit, that still hasn't, you know, validated the viability of its business model, which means that these IPOs are riskier than ever. They really are a crapshoot. And the only reason that more investors haven't crapped out is because the Fed's in the casino, right? The Fed is printing up all this money and enabling a lot of these stocks uh, to rise in value before they collapse. And in fact, if we didn't have this, this era of cheap money, none of these companies would be going public. In fact, most of them wouldn't even be being formed. I mean, I got into that on my last podcast as well about how the Federal Reserve is distorting the markets and causing business models to be funded that if interest rates were normal, if they were a function of supply and demand of savings, uh, you know, these harebrained schemes never would see the light of day. Uh, but because of the Fed and its influence on money, this happens. And of course, a lot of individuals are getting suckered into this uh, casino and it's all going to end badly. You know, whether, you know, it hasn't yet. I mean, sure, there's a lot of these money losing stocks that haven't imploded yet. And investors, you know, really have no idea uh, what's waiting for them around the corner. You know, one of the uh, markets that was not quiet today was the oil market. Oil prices continuing their surge. New highs for the year today. We closed at 62.55 for a barrel of West Texas crude. You know, we're now almost 50% above the December low. And if you want to measure the price of oil from December 31st, right, this calendar year, 2019, we're up about, I think, 37% in the price of oil. And we're just starting April, right? So we got a long way to go. This may well be one of the best, if not maybe the best years for oil as far as gain in history. And it's ironic, you know, because the Federal Reserve has done a complete 180 on interest rates and QE, citing at its, as its primary reason oil prices going down, despite the fact that oil prices uh, have done nothing but go up pretty much ever since the last rate hike. In fact, when the Fed hiked rates on September 27th, oil was over $72 a barrel. And then it collapsed. Yet despite that collapse, on December 20th, when oil was at $46 a barrel, a 36% decline, the Fed hiked rates. Now, if the Fed is so concerned about falling oil prices, why did it hike rates in December? Why didn't it look at that collapse in oil prices and decide not to hike? Because it couldn't give a damn about oil prices going down. That's why it didn't matter that the price of oil went down. What matters was what happened to the stock market, which had been falling between the September 27th and the December 20th rate hike. But at that time, the Fed said they didn't care about the stock market. Hey, you know, let the chips fall where they may. They had a very cavalier attitude publicly about the stock market. But after that December rate hike, when stocks went into free fall, especially on Christmas Eve, that is what motivated the Fed to do the about face. It was weakness in stock prices, not weakness in oil prices, 
that were concerning for the Fed. I mean, if anything, the Fed probably welcomed uh, the falling oil prices. They probably thought that that would help, uh, you know, give a stimulus to the economy, that that would offset uh, the higher interest rates because consumers, maybe they'd have to pay more money for their debt, but they'd get to buy gas cheaper, right? So that they probably like that. But now they're using that as an excuse, even though oil prices are now uh, 36, 37% higher than they were when they hiked rates in December. And again, the reason that oil prices fell in uh, that time period, because they had been rising, right? Oil had been rising steadily to get to $72 a barrel. But then the Fed got extra hawkish, right? They were talking about continuously the hike rates. And more importantly, they were going to have their quantitative tightening program on autopilot at a time where the budget deficits were exploding. And that really scared the global economy or global investors, because in a world where the U.S. government was running massive budget deficits, where the Fed was not monetizing any of those deficits. In fact, the Fed was going to compound the problem by shrinking its balance sheet on autopilot. That was massive borrowing that uh, the world assumed was going to be financed at the expense of the global economy, of the emerging markets. All the money that was going to be loaned to the U.S. government to fund these deficits and to repay the Fed as its balance sheet declined, that was going to come at the expense of uh, the emerging markets, right? And, and so it was going to drive the dollar higher. And you had this threat of a complete collapse of the global economy uh, due to the Fed basically sucking the life out of the global economy. And so oil prices were collapsing, just like stock price, everything else. Now that the Fed has taken all of those future rate hikes off the table, now that the Fed has come clean and admitted what you know, the market should have figured out anyway that they're not going to keep shrinking their balance sheet, that that's done, that the balance sheet is pretty much going to stay where it is. That pressure has come off the global economy and that pressure has come off the oil price. And so now oil prices are rising and oil prices, again, are rising despite the fact that the dollar continues to inch higher. The dollar index, again, is still above 97. And if oil prices are this strong, against a backdrop of a strengthening dollar. Imagine how much stronger oil prices are going to be when the dollar resumes its decline, because the dollar is going to decline. I mean, the dollar's decline is not too far away. I mean, it could start falling any day. We'll see. Maybe the catalyst will be the non-farm uh, payrolls report that's going to be coming out on, on Friday. But when the dollar really starts to come down, then oil prices are going to kick into a whole new gear of moving higher. Now, I'm wondering if at any point people will start worrying if rising oil prices may cause the Fed to want to hike rates. Now, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But if, if, if weak oil prices were the reason uh, for the Fed remaining patient, if oil starts making new highs, if oil gets back above the $72 area where it fell from back in September of last year, if that happens, then, you know, what's the next excuse that the Fed is going to come up with as to why it's not raising rates? And by the way, one of the reasons that other central banks, particularly the ECB, was justifying, you know, softening its stance 
on removing monetary accommodation was the weak oil prices that we had in the fourth quarter to the extent that those prices translated into lower headline inflation numbers. But now that prices are rising, particularly energy prices, you're going to start to see some real upward pressure on inflation indexes around the world. And foreign central banks are going to have to adjust their policy. Remember, the ECB has to keep headline inflation below 2%. They can't even let it hit 2%. They say it needs to be close to, but not 2%. And the way we're seeing increasing prices, is, again, it's not going to take long before the Eurozone is up against that ceiling. But the Federal Reserve has already said, we have no 2% ceiling. We're going to be symmetrical. So we're the one major central bank that is on record as being willing to tolerate inflation that is above 2%. Believe me, they're going to tolerate inflation at 3% or 4% or 5%. Wherever it goes, the Fed's going to tolerate it because it has no choice because it's impossible to fight it. But again, just like it doesn't want to tell the truth about why it had a reversal in its monetary policy, it is not going to tell the truth uh, about uh, why it's not fighting inflation. It may pretend that it's going to fight inflation, but it will never actually do it. You know, the amazing thing, and I, I don't know why, you know, people still can't figure this out, especially when the financial crisis, you know, is still relatively fresh in, in people's memories. But the big catalyst, the big problem in the housing market was that so many people who bought homes used adjustable rate mortgages to buy the houses. And, and, and more uh, specifically, they were given a teaser rate. So their adjustable rate mortgage started out even lower, right? The teaser rate meant that for the first two years or three years, you had this really, really low rate, this introductory rate that enabled you to uh, get into your house you know, really, really cheap. And the reason we had that is because the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates down to 1%. Now, nobody believed that they would stay at 1%, but they knew they were at 1% for a while. And the Fed under Greenspan said that when we do raise interest rates, we're going to raise them very slowly. So that enabled the banks to offer these teaser rates for a couple of years because they knew that their cost of funds was going to stay low thanks to the Fed. And, you know, based on market forces, they passed on that cheap money to home buyers in the form of this teaser rate. So what did home buyers do with the teaser rate? Well, they used that cheap money to go out and buy a house that they otherwise couldn't have afforded if they didn't have the teaser rate. Now, didn't anybody think, well, what's going to happen in two or three years when the teaser rate expires and the rate is higher? No, nobody cared because back then... The only thing you wanted to do was get into the house, right? Because buying a house was your ticket to Easy Street. It didn't matter if you couldn't afford it. If you bought it, you know, you were going to get rich. I mean, I remember joking back in the days of the housing bubble that at one time people said you need to have, you need to make money to buy a house. You have to save up a bunch of money and then you can take your savings and you can buy a house, right? So you needed a job so you can save money so you can buy a house. Well, during the housing bubble, you didn't need to save money. You didn't need a job. All you needed was a house. In fact, if you had a house, you didn't need a job because the house did the work for you. It just appreciated. It only went up. So people would do whatever they could to get into a house. That's where you got these liars loans, right? Where people no doc loans because people had a lie to get into a house 
because once they bought it, then all their problems were solved because the house was just going to appreciate. So a lot of people figured, look, I'm going to buy this house. I can afford to make the teaser payments. Yeah, in two or three years when the tees, when the when the rates reset, well, you know, I'll try to refinance and get another teaser rate. Or worst case scenario, I'll sell the house and I'll make a bunch of money, right? That was what people thought. Well, it didn't turn out that way because when the teaser rates all, you know, matured and everybody had higher rates of interest and people couldn't afford uh, to make their mortgage payments, housing prices dropped because without the teaser rates, other people couldn't afford to buy them either. And so what did the uh, borrowers do? Well, they just mailed in their keys, right? That's what they did. Uh, jingle mail. So the Federal Reserve, by keeping interest rates artificially low, basically encouraged and incentivized and made possible uh, a lot of uh, real estate transactions that never would have taken place absent the Fed. People never could have bought these homes without these teaser rates. And the teaser rates only existed because of the Fed. So you had the Federal Reserve influencing the economy uh, and encouraging people to do foolish things with cheap money. Well, what did the Federal Reserve do under Bernanke and Yellen, right? They encouraged even more stupid things to be done by lowering interest rates even more to zero and leaving them there for a much, much longer period of time than Greenspan kept them at 1%. So a lot of other uh, debt was taken out. A lot of other uh, investments were made or projects were funded, right? Because interest rates were kept so low for so long. Now the Fed tries to raise interest rates just like when the teaser rates expired on the mortgages. And what happens? Well, you know, now, you know, it doesn't work anymore, right? But you just can't mail in your keys to, to the entire economy. But it's not working out any better because now all the mistakes that were made when rates were artificially low are being exposed as rates are rising. That is why the Fed is reversing course. It's trying to prevent this from happening, right? It's trying to keep the water in the dam, even though it's already, you know, poked all these holes in there. It's quickly trying to plug up these holes, but it's not going to work. You know, just like the housing market imploded when the, the teaser rates uh, disappeared and, and reset, this entire bubble that the Fed inflated this time deflates as interest rates are rising. And so now the, you know, now the Fed has, has, has called it off, but the markets still don't understand exactly what happened. I mean, they're still trying to champion the so-called recovery as if it was anything other than a gigantic bubble. And they're trying to make excuses for what happened rather than acknowledging that the air is coming out. In fact, Larry Kudlow, you know, who was a big cheerleader during the, the last bubble, I was listening to an interview with him today. You know, Larry Kudlow has said that we need a, a 50 basis point a rate cut. And the reason he said he needed this, because he's trying to square that with his contention or Trump's contention that we have the greatest economy ever. And well, if we have the greatest economy ever, then why do we need a 50 basis point rate cut? And when Kudlow is, you know, is asked about that seeming um, contradiction, he says, no, 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 the economy is great. We just need the rate cuts to make sure it stays great. Right. We just need a little insurance to make sure this great recovery continues. Well, first of all, if the recovery is so great, 
then why do we need help? Why do we need an insurance policy, right? The fact that he's worried shows you that it's not really as strong as, as he pretends. But again, this is not about a strong economy. A strong economy could withstand higher interest rates. This is about a bubble economy. This is about a gigantic credit bubble that was inflated by the Federal Reserve that is unsustainable at you know two and a quarter, two and a half percent interest rates. And that's why rates need to be reduced to try to keep the bubble from popping. But bubbles can inflate indefinitely. It's not like that we could simply uh, keep this thing going forever if we simply refuse to allow interest rates to normalize because then we're going to have a currency crisis. You know, he was also asked about uh, Steve Moore, his friend, and also a friend of mine. I mean, I'm not as friendly with him, I guess, as Larry, but I know him pretty well. And, um, you know, he basically defended Steve Moore uh, he would be a fantastic uh, Fed governor. I support him. The president supports him. And his main reason for supporting him, at least you know what he articulated in this particular interview, is that he said, well, Steve Moore knows that growth doesn't cause inflation. Steve Moore knows that people working doesn't cause inflation, which is true. Those things don't cause inflation. But what does that have to do with what's going on today? I mean, the inflation is the expansion of the money supply. Larry Kudlow knows that. Well, what does he think the Federal Reserve has been doing all these years? They've been expanding the money supply. The inflation has already been created. It's not about people working. It's not about an economy growing. It's about the money supply growing, and it has already grown. And what Kudlow wants to do is keep that party going. And maybe he's hoping more uh, will help the Fed keep that party going. But it's not about growth. It's not about production. It's about money printing. It's about artificially low interest rates. Inflation, as Larry Kudlow well knows, is a monetary phenomenon. He says it himself. Well, what has happened to our money? What is, you know, the money supply, the supply of credit has gone up dramatically. And right now, a lot of that inflation, as I have been saying, based on the dynamics of our trade deficit and the way the money has entered the economy, has manifested itself in a rising stock market, in a rising bond market, in a rising real estate market. And really what Larry Kudlow wants to do is keep the inflation that has already been created from moving from the financial market to the real economy. And so he's looking for anybody to argue that we should keep the party going we should not fear uh, low unemployment. We should not fear growth. We should just keep interest rates low and keep the presses running. So again, this is an example of, of being right for the wrong reason. You know, another great example of being right for the wrong reason uh, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I only heard this quote because I was listening to an interview on, on Fox News, Tucker Carlson. Uh, was uh, or not interviewing her. He was just basically reporting about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Obviously not in a very favorable way and pointing about basically or talking about all of the dumb things that she says and, and trying to, you know, postulate why why she's popular why do people like her despite the fact that you know she says all these dumb things well of course a lot of the people who like her believe all these dumb things and they're maybe as dumb or in fact even dumber than she is uh so you got the blind leading the blind but he did point out one thing that she says that he agrees with and i agree with it too 
But again, you've got people being right for the wrong reason. So he played a clip of uh, AOC. Again, I, I call her the bartender. So let me just go back to calling her the bartender. But anyway, he plays a, a clip of the bartender and she's talking uh, a bunch of nonsense until she finally, you know, like a blind squirrel, you know, finding a nut. She starts talking about the phony nature of our economy. And she says, and I'm not quoting her exactly, but just kind of paraphrasing it. But she says that, you know, real economies grow by production. They grow by innovation, which which is true. And she said, our economy in America, we don't have that. We have a financial economy. It's And, and, and we're growing by loans and interest rate and debt and credit. And she said, this is not real. And this is why we have this big uh, disparity. We have this huge uh, generationally or historically high wealth gap between the rich and the poor because we don't have a real economy that works for everybody that is, you know, producing more and innovating. We just have this financial engineering, this paper shuffling economy that works for some people, but, but, but at the expense of everybody else. And of course, she's 100% right about that. And Tucker Carlson was 100% right to point out that she was 100% right. But that's where the, you know, being right ends <laughs> because she has no idea why we have that type of economy. Why is it that we're not saving and producing? Why do we have all this financial engineering? Why does every American know their credit score, which is ridiculous? I mean, the idea that people would borrow money to consume, I mean, it's so ridiculous right? That this happens. You know, people should be borrowing. We should be borrowing money to finance capital investment. People should be borrowing money to buy a television set or to buy a mattress or even to buy a car or to take a vacation, right? I mean, people should be paying for these things out of their savings. And once upon a time in America, that's exactly what we did. When we had real money, uh, people saved, right? Investment went to production, Right, because they could afford to bid for the money. See, if the Federal Reserve allowed interest rates to go to a market rate, based on how little savings we have and how much debt we have, interest rates would be very, very high right now. And what would that mean? That would mean governments would have to cut spending because they couldn't afford uh, to borrow the money. That's just not only the federal government, but the state governments, local governments. So governments would have to be much smaller, which, of course, is what we need. Uh, and, of course, uh, the rates would be so high that you know people couldn't afford to borrow to finance money losing companies, and, and individuals couldn't afford to borrow uh, to consume. The rates would be so high that the only people who would get the capital would be businesses that were using it to buy capital equipment that could produce a return on investment that was sufficiently high to actually service the debt. Right. And then we would have the investment in the innovation and, you know, the rising standards of living that that the bartender, right, is lamenting that we don't have. Right. We would be more productive. We would be more innovative and people would have higher paying jobs and we would have a higher return on savings. But those things aren't happening because the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates artificially low and encouraging all sorts of, uh, you know, gambling and consumption and discouraging the type of savings that we need to uh, invest in, in, in plant and equipment and to, you know, uh, training for workers and all the things that would make the economy more productive. Now the question is, though, 
why is the Federal Reserve doing this? Why does the Federal Reserve keep interest rates so low? And the answer is to facilitate massive government debt. And it's hard to know, you know, which is the chicken and which is the egg, right? Or which is the cart and which is the horse? Is the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates low because the government is running these big debts? Or is the government running big debts because the Fed is keeping interest rates so low and making it possible? I mean, there's enough blame to go around. I mean, clearly you can blame both, but I would blame the Fed more because the Fed is supposed to be apolitical. The Fed's job is supposed to be to take the punch bowl away. So the Fed is not supposed to be there to enable big deficits, but that's exactly what it's doing. So because the government is spending all this money on a lot of social programs that not only does the bartender support, but she wants to expand. In fact, she doesn't want to just expand the programs we got now. She wants to add a whole bunch of more programs that will cost even more money. Now, yes, she does want to raise taxes on the rich, but even she will admit that the tax revenue that she's likely to extract from the rich will not be anywhere near the the cost of the extra programs that she wants. And she is totally willing to have the Federal Reserve. She has said that she wants the Federal Reserve to pay for this, right? Let's put it all, let's let, let the Federal Reserve pay for it. Well, in other words, she is advocating for more of the same monetary policy that has created the phony financial economy that she correctly pointed out is the problem. So the irony of it is she actually wants to make the very problem that she pointed out worse. Her cure actually makes the disease that much worse, actually makes it fatal. Now, of course, Tucker Carlson didn't point any of this out because I don't know that Tucker has has thought this through. I mean, he knows, you know, intuitively that she's she's got some valid points there, but probably hasn't connected the dots to understand that it's the Federal Reserve that is the reason that we've got this phony economy. And it's all to facilitate massive government debts to finance all this government spending that politicians don't have the balls to ask taxpayers to actually pay for. Because most taxpayers, if you ask them to pay for these government programs, would say, no, thank you. They only want the programs because they think it's a free lunch. But the minute you say they got to pay for the lunch, they're gonna, they're not going to like it because, you know, it's not really that great a lunch. doesn't taste very good. They just assume uh, get their own lunch. But, they, you know, the bigger problem here is you've got a crazed democratic socialist telling the truth about the fact that we have a phony economy based on debt and credit and speculation, right, instead of a real economy based on savings and investment, right? She's telling the truth while you have the Republicans saying the economy is great. We have the greatest economy ever, right, and they're taking credit for it. Well, now the bubble is going to pop. Right now, it's either going to pop before the 2020 election or after. Right. I mean, I've been saying I think it's going to pop before. But even if I'm wrong, even if it, you know, it it holds off until after the 2020 election, Trump's going to be president when the bubble pops. The Republicans are going to be in the White House when it pops, either because they're in the White House when it pops before 2020, in which case they're not in the White House in 2021 where they're in the right house in 2021 and, you know, it pops sometime before 2024. I'd say there's absolutely no chance whatsoever that we make it to 2024, right? And then, you know, there's another election and somehow we get a Democrat and then it all blows up in 2025. I mean, I would put the odds of that 
at pretty much zero. Uh, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up while the Republicans are there. And so the Republicans are going to get blamed, and they're the ones that thought the economy was great. And so people like AOC or the bartender who correctly pointed out it was a bubble and it was phony, well, now the, the voters are going to look to her for solutions. Oh, yeah, she was right. She said it was a problem. Okay, now what are your solutions? All of her solutions make the problem so much worse. It's unfortunate that the Republicans won't get on the right side of this issue. But again, and I've said this many times, everything that's good economics is bad politics. And everything that's bad economics is good politics, right? Nowhere can you see that better example of that than in healthcare. I mean, look at President Trump. Again, all these tweets came out today about healthcare and how the Republicans are going to redo Obamacare and make it better and cheaper. Right. Of course, that's not he doesn't say that, but that's basically what he's saying. And he's basically holding out this carrot until after the 2020 election. See, the Republicans, I guess, are not going to put through their plan uh, now because then people can see what it is and see that it's a complete joke. So he's just kind of dangling it out there like, hey, if you reelect me in 2020 and if you put the Republicans back in charge of of the House, then we're going to pass this new health care plan. And he basically says that the Republican Party is going to be known as the party of great health care, right? I mean, I'd rather see the Republican Party known as the party of the free markets, right? The party of fiscal responsibility, right? No, no, no. He wants the Republican Party to be known as the party of great government health care. And one of the things that Trump is saying is that this new great health plan that the Republicans are going to pass, but we don't even know what it is. We haven't even seen it, but they're going to pass it. Just trust us. But they're going to pass this great plan that's going to be so much better than Obamacare, right? It's going to be better health care for less. And and we're still going to cover everybody with pre-existing conditions. And of course, the minute he says that, you know, it's a lie. You, you can't cover people. If you are going to force insurance companies to sell insurance to anybody, no matter how sick they are, and charge them the same price as they would charge somebody who's completely healthy, there's only one way to do that. And Obama tried it and it didn't work because the penalty was too small. The only way to do that is you have to mandate, you have to require that everybody buy insurance. And if they don't, they have to face a very stiff penalty for not doing it, right? That's what they do in Switzerland, right? They basically require, you know, everybody to buy a basic insurance package. And if you don't buy that, you get a, a very sharp penalty. So people buy it. Now, if you want premium coverage, you can go and buy that, and that costs extra. But you have to at least buy this basic uh, health insurance, and everybody can buy it, no matter, even if you're, you have a pre-existing condition. But if you don't buy it, you're, you're going to get, you're going to pay a fine. You're going to be taxed, right? And so that is what we need to do. But Obama tried that. The problem was the penalty was too low to actually force sick people to buy insurance, which ironically was the only reason they held it constitutional was because the penalty was so low that it didn't work, and so they called it a tax. But then the Republicans, the only thing they repealed was the penalty tax uh, that was irrelevant to anybody because it was too low, but they didn't want the tax. Trump wants to say, this is terrible. We shouldn't tax you if you don't buy insurance. But then again, 
we don't want to let insurance companies punish you if you don't buy it. We don't want insurance companies to be able to charge you more once you get sick. So everything that Trump is saying is impossible to happen, but he is basically dooming uh, the nation because the Republican Party is going to have nothing to stand on because they have already lost the battle or lost the war because they have given in to the ridiculous demand that sick people should be able to buy insurance for the same cost as healthy people, which means that you've destroyed the very concept of insurance and you've basically already accepted that we're going to have socialized medicine. That's basically what you've done. You've conceded those points and you've simply laid the foundation for socialist medicine. And that's what's coming. It's only a question of time. And I think I think we're going to get it after the 2020 election and not because it's going to be delivered by Trump and the Republicans, but because it's going to be delivered by the socialists uh, who are masquerading as Democrats. You know, another thing, too, that uh, the president has been threatening to do uh, is uh, shut down the border between the United States and, and Mexico, which, again, is something that's never going to happen. Uh, but it's just something that Trump is talking about. I mean, what a disaster that would be if we actually closed the border so that no goods or people could move across the border. Now, remember, America has a big trade deficit with Mexico, just like we have trade deficits with just about everybody. So that means Mexico sends us a lot of stuff. Well, if that stuff wasn't coming here, how would the economy function without it? Right. I mean, think about the automobile industry. I mean, we still have a semblance of an automobile industry. I mean, it's nothing like what it used to be, but we still have an automobile industry. But, you know, a lot of the parts are brought in from Mexico. So how are you going to make cars without parts? So the whole auto, auto industry would collapse. What about agriculture? I mean, imagine if we had no more workers that are coming across legally. Right? Forget about the illegals. There's a lot of Mexicans who legally cross the border to work in U.S. farms. What would happen to farm output if there was no agricultural workers, right? And, and it's not just the people. We import a lot of fruits and vegetables from Mexico, right? A lot of this stuff comes in. I read pretty much 100% of our avocados come from, uh, from Mexico. I eat avocado almost every day. All of a sudden, you know, a lot of people are eating avocados. Uh, well, they wouldn't be here. I mean, now maybe we can get them from someplace else if we didn't get them from Mexico, but how much more expensive would they be? And if avocados were a lot more expensive, and obviously uh, far fewer people would, would be buying them. So Trump could talk all he wants about shutting down the border with Mexico. But at the end of the day, there's no way he's going to do it. But, you know, maybe of all the nonsense that you know, I've heard today, probably the most has to do with uh, the gender pay gap. Because today was supposedly equal pay day, right? April 2nd. I mean, they probably should have made it April Fool's Day, which was yesterday, because anybody believes this nonsense is a fool. But the, the whole idea behind uh, this equal pay day is supposedly it takes a woman, it took a woman all the way until today, right, to earn the money that she should have been paid last year, right? Because women earn like 80 cents on the dollar of what a man makes. And so if a man worked in 2018 a woman would have to work all of 2018 plus until today of 2019 to equal what the guy made in just one year. And this is all a bunch of crap, right? Women are not paid 80 cents on the dollar. It's just a fiction. It's completely made up uh, in order to advance an agenda uh, that includes more government, right? Because they think there's a problem here, this pay gap, that the government needs to solve with legislation, right? Mandating that women get paid more. Now, first of all, 
assuming this was true, let's just assume for a second that women are actually paid 80 cents on the dollar to do the exact same job as a man, right? They're, they're doing the same work. They are equally as productive, right, as the guy, but they're just getting 80 cents on the dollar. I mean, obviously, it's a free country. Nobody is forcing women to accept lower pay. But for whatever reason, they're negotiating and they're accepting lower pay. And this is just how it is, right? Well, then that's the way it is. I mean, it's not up to the government to go renegotiate those contracts. I mean, if a willing buyer and a willing seller get together and they result in a deal, right? A woman takes a job. And of course, the gender pay gap doesn't differentiate between female and male employees. So in theory, women who hire women pay those women 20% less than those women pay the men that they hire. So it's not just men who are discriminating against women. It's women who are discriminating against women, right? So if this actually was happening, if men and women, whenever they hired a woman, somehow the woman agreed to work for 20% less than the guy doing the exact same job, well, then that's the way it is, right? I mean, it's a free country, right? The government can't come in and coerce, right, an employer and force them to just pay more money than than the market uh, would bear. But, of course, all this is nonsense because this would never happen. In a free market, let's just assume, again, like I said, that women are doing work that is exactly the same as a man, right? but for 20% less. Are employers a bunch of idiots, right? If here's a woman and she's going to do the job and she's going to do the job, let's say, for $8 an hour and a guy is going to do the job for $10 an hour and it's going to be exactly the same. They're going to be exactly as productive. I'd have to be a moron to hire the guy. I mean, most people who are smart enough to run a business can subtract. They know that 10 is bigger than 8. And if I can hire somebody for eight, that $2 an hour savings goes into my pocket. So if women were working for 20% less than men, nobody would hire men. You would only hire women, right? Everybody would want to hire these women. Hey, where are all these women that are willing to work for less than my the, than the guys, right? And so, of course, what would happen is there'd be so much demand for women that they would bid up the prices for women. And, you know, people wouldn't want to hire men so the men would have to start reducing their price. They'd have to go on sale, right? The men would have to say, wait, all these women are taking our jobs. They're undercutting us. Okay. And so eventually the free market would eradicate the difference between men and women. Now, let's assume though that men and women are not actually equal in uh, the value that they are Uh, giving their employers. Let's assume that there's some difference in there that actually increases the cost of hiring a woman that you don't really see when you are just measuring the wages, right? Let's say women take more time off, right? Let's say women want more flexibility in their schedule. Let's say women potentially work more from home than men. Let's say women are not as willing to travel as men. Maybe they're not willing to work later into the evening, or maybe they're not willing to take longer uh, business trips, right? Or, Or maybe they interrupt their careers from time to time. Maybe they go in and out of the workforce so that they, 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 even though they may have been working or supposedly in the workforce for as long as men, they haven't been in the workforce constantly, right? In other words, they're just not 
providing as much value as the male worker because of the added uh, flexibility or the, whatever else they are demanding as terms of their employment, which is fine. And employers may say, look, you know, I'm perfectly happy or willing to employ a woman under these circumstances, but I can't pay that woman as much as I'm going to pay the man. And the woman can find, you know, that's fine with me because I, I value these, this non-monetary compensation that I'm getting, right? Because I have other things that are very important to me in my family and my personal life that I want to prioritize. And if that means that I'm, on, I'm not on the same career track and maybe I'm not going to make quite as much money, that's fine. And remember, a lot of these women are married and their husbands are working and uh, spending less time at home and more time at the office. But at the end of the day, it's the household income that counts. And so most women are fine if their husbands are making more money because their husbands aren't spending as much time taking care of the kids and taking care of the house as they are. But all the money that the husband makes still goes into a pot that the wife spends, right, along with her own money, right? So you have to look at the entire uh, family's income and which spouse is the one that is, you know, putting her career on a back seat relative to the man. Now, of course, you got all sorts of other things where you have a lot of women are going into occupations that have lower pay. I mean, a lot of the men that earn more are doing the type of, you know, physical labor that a lot of women either don't want to do or simply are not capable of doing. But that hard labor, uh, you know, is more expensive to hire because it's, it's a lot less pleasant. Let's say somebody is working as a coal miner, I mean, that's not the easiest way to make a living. And so uh, not as many women are willing to get, get down in the mines. Not that I'm saying no women are, but in general, you're going to find a lot more men. I mean, truck driving is another example. Uh, that is a difficult job. I mean, it's late hours. You're away from home from a long, long periods of time. Most women don't want to do that. I mean, truck driver is the uh, most popular job in America for men. You know, of course, it's one of these jobs that can be eliminated uh, with autonomous trucks. But right now, I mean, truck driver is uh, a, a job that a lot of men have. But women are not really going to uh, be interested in taking those jobs, even if they may pay more uh, than the jobs that they have. But the bottom line is that whatever disparity that we see in the marketplace where women are paid less than men, it's because the difference is being made up by other non-monetary factors that increase the cost of hiring women so that to the employer, he's indifferent, right? Women and men are paid the same. And you know, one of the other things that I've mentioned that increases the cost of hiring women is the fact that women are more likely to sue you than men. Why are women more likely to sue you than men? Well, because they have been given you know, protective status. So if you fire a woman, she can sue you and claim that you fired her because she's a woman. No guy is going to sue you and say, you fired me because I'm a man, right? Now, let's assume you don't promote a woman. She can sue you and say, well, you didn't promote me because I'm a woman. But if you fail to promote a man, well, he can't come and say, well, you didn't give me the job because I'm a man. So you have far greater odds of being sued by a female employee than a male employee. So that also increases the cost of hiring women because you have to build in 
uh, a, a value for that. Also, sexual harassment. I mean, you're far more likely to be sued by a woman who claims that some guy that you hired sexually harassed her. I mean, what's the odds that you're going to hire a guy and he's going to claim that he was sexually harassed by one of your female employees? I mean, zero. I mean, to the extent that uh, there's a bunch of women sexually harassing men that work for you, you could probably get those men to come to work for less money. I mean, men are probably more likely to show up if they're going to be sexually harassed uh, than the other way around. So bottom line is you have no liability there, but you have liability uh, when you when you hire a woman. So again, all of this is factored in to the cost of hiring women. So the free market makes sure that there is no disparity. Everybody is actually getting paid for the value that they are bringing to their employer. It is equal pay for equal value. And some of the pay that women receive is in the form of non-monetary compensation that has value to those women, which is why they are willing to work for less money. But it is not saving the employer anything because if the employer was actually coming out ahead, if he was actually getting a great deal hiring women, then that's all he would hire. He would only hire women, or she would only hire women. But the fact of the matter is, there is no gap. This is all a, a, a ruse to try to argue for more government, right? More victimhood, right? And also to get women to vote for you. Oh, Vote for me, a Democrat, because you're a woman, you're a victim, you're just being exploited, you're just being paid less than you're worth, and so you need to vote for me because I'm going to go to Washington and I'm going to force these, you know, these greedy uh, uh, men who are discriminating against you, you know, setting a, a, a apart the fact that women do it too, right? So women are out there discriminating against other women just like men. And in fact, I've seen studies where they actually account for all the disparities, right? If you take, let's say, a woman who has never been married, right? No, no husband, no kids, totally career-driven and focused, and you compare that woman to her male counterpart, then the, the, the so-called gender gap goes away completely. And in fact, I've seen statistics that show that black female college graduates earn more than black male college graduates. Why is that? Right? I mean, I mean, because you, you, they both went to college. They're both black, and the women are actually getting paid more. I mean, and and so if there was a gender gap, I mean, why wouldn't it be consistent across the racial gap that supposedly exists, which again doesn't exist to the extent that any group is actually being paid less than another group in a free market? There are valid reasons for that to happen. And there is no government solution that's going to work. The reality is if the government comes in and does anything to force employers to pay women more, then what are they going to do? That is going to be another incentive not to hire women. And what it is going to do is force women to work and accept money rather than other things that are more valuable to them than money. But if the employer is not going to be credited for providing that type of value, if the only type of value the government allows him to or her uh, to convey to an employee is actual cash, then a lot of the non-cash benefits that women value more, they're going to lose. And in other words, women will end up worse off as a result of any government 
solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Now, I don't want anybody to think that uh, I'm ignoring what's happening in Bitcoin because we've had a big rally and some people think, hey, I only want to talk about the cryptocurrencies when they go down. Well, they've been very stable for a while. You know, Bitcoin is held out at around 4,000, a little bit lower, a little bit higher. But all of a sudden yesterday, and I think the whole rally happened in about a half hour, um, Bitcoin went from 4,000 to 5,000. In fact, I'm looking at Bitstamp right now. And the high price was 5080 And as I'm recording this podcast, we're back above 4800 So we're still within 300 or so of that spike high that we had in Bitcoin. And, you know, I almost yesterday, April Fool's, I, felt, I, I was very close to putting out a tweet where I basically said, you know, I've thought about it and I've decided I was wrong. I'm selling all my gold and putting all my money into Bitcoin. I almost did that as an April Fool's joke. And kind of the reason I didn't do it is I was afraid that, you know, people wouldn't get it was a joke, right? Uh, they would they would think I was serious. And they might run out and, and buy some Bitcoin. Now, looking back, I mean, I guess it would have been a great trade because I could have told them today it was a joke and they could have cashed out as a profit. Although it might have been funny had I actually done that when I wanted and then the price shot up, it would have almost looked like people believed me and I was responsible for that big run up in the price because now Peter Schiff, this, you know, this Bitcoin bear had turned bullish and that might have been a catalyst for the rally. I don't know. But in any event, we had this big spike up. To me, you know, it looks like some attempt at manipulation because you had large buy orders coming in, maybe at a time they looked around and there weren't a lot of offers there and they figured for a small amount of money, we can really you know, rush this market higher. And what the hope is probably is to get people thinking, aha, this is it, right? We're about to go ballistic. We're going to moon. You know, we're going to go back to 20,000. We've broken out. This is it. Don't miss out, right? FOMO, maybe try to engender a lot of, uh, you know, enthusiasm. And so the people who bought are now likely selling into this rally and they probably have a lot more Bitcoin that they're hoping to sell now that they've sparked this rally to get the animal spirits going again in Bitcoin. And maybe part of it too has to do with the fact that gold really has stopped going up. We had that pullback and so maybe some of the people have been disappointed that we haven't seen a bigger move in gold based on the complete 180 that the Federal Reserve has done. And so that might have also been a little bit of a catalyst to try to, uh, well, gold won't go up. Well, maybe digital gold will go up and it's, maybe it's helped uh, uh, Bitcoin. But I do believe that we're going to get a rally in gold. And again, that will steal back uh, some of this thunder. But I don't think that this rise is anything but a bear market rally in uh, the cryptocurrency, in all cryptocurrencies, right? I mean, remember, Bitcoin's bear market started when Bitcoin was around 20,000 a coin. And just because we rallied from 4,000 to 5,000 uh, doesn't change that dynamic. The trend is still down and rallies should be sold, not bought. But I want to um, you know, finish up today's podcast and just make an appeal on behalf of actually my father's ex uh, fiance. And I only say ex because my father passed away, and so he was never able to marry uh, Cynthia, who uh, he actually became engaged to while the two of them were both in, in federal prison. They were in separate prisons because my father was in a prison for men, and uh, uh, Cindy was in a, a woman's prison. And she didn't have nearly as long a sentence as my father did. So she served her time, and she got out. And she's also quite a bit younger uh, than my father. Uh, and so my father didn't live long enough to actually marry her. 
but, you know, she's out and she's been having a tough time. She's living out in the Austin, Texas area. And one of the reasons she's having a hard time is she has a hard time getting a job because nobody will hire her, apparently, because she's an ex-con. Uh, and so that makes it harder. But she's also paying uh, some uh, some reparations to uh, the U.S., to the IRS, right, because she wasn't paying taxes. So she's required to uh, to pay reparations. So uh, and the reason I wanted to mention her on the, the podcast is, A, she is an artist. And if you if you are in the market for art, right, if you go to her website, it's Artist C. Smith is the URL. So you just spell out Artist C. Smith. And you can look around on that website at the, the painting she has. I think she has an inventory of hundreds and hundreds of paintings that she's already done. Of course, you can commission her and, and she could, you know, just, you know, do uh, do a project. And she's also uh, beautiful penmanship. I mean, she can handwrite uh, invitations. There's a lot of stuff she could do. She's very artistic. Uh, but, I mean, she could use some extra business. Uh, so I wanted to, uh, you know, promote uh, her site. And, you know, it's not charity because, I mean, the work is good and she'll do some work for you. And um, it's artistcsmith.com. Also, you can, she has a Facebook page with that on it. And she may look, you know, maybe she'd also be willing, or she probably would be willing, uh, to work for a company uh, in, you know, any capacity where she can add value, probably in the, the Austin area, Austin, Texas. I mean, she's not in Austin. She's in a suburb. But I think that's the closest major city uh, to where she is. So you could probably reach out to her on her Facebook page or, you know, through this, uh, her, her website on contemporary fine art, um, artistcsmith.com or send an email or maybe drop an email to me at Ship Radio. Uh, and, uh, you know, it'd be great if we can get her a good job. It'd be great if she can sell some art uh, and it would help go a long way. And I know it would make my dad happy um, to have, uh, you know, more people kind of supporting her in her efforts. Uh, you know, she was railroaded into jail. Uh, she was as much a political prisoner as my father was. She really shouldn't have gone to jail. And, uh, and so whatever we could do to help her, I think, uh, would be much appreciated. (laughs) 